We turn this evening to uh, Hosea, chapter 5 this evening, uh, heading through the Bible, Genesis to Revelation, and now in Hosea. So we uh, hope that any thoughts of pineapple-flavored ice cream uh, will be banished for the next 50 minutes, um, and then uh, we can enjoy that, that treat. We remember as we look at this, it's important for us to uh, we don't want to lose sight of the big picture as we go through Hosea, as God lays out kind of the uh, details of the collapse of the northern kingdom of Israel and the reasons why and how contemporary all of this is to the world that we live in today. And so God spoke through Hosea the prophet, through his family, his wife, and all of their lives being uh, uh, living parables or a living message to the nation northern kingdom of Israel in chapters 1 through 3. And then as we began in chapter 4 and really on through the end of the book, God begins to detail uh, the sins of the specific sins of the northern kingdom of Israel uh, that were going to bring judgment uh, upon them. And you might remember last week as chapter 4 began, the setting is kind of of a courtroom and really a divorce court, if you would, in which God uh, stands up in his relationship as the husband in Old Testament imagery, a husband of Israel who is his wife, and he begins to detail now all of her spiritual adulteries, all of the causes that he has uh, legally based upon her violation of the covenant. And the covenant between God and his people in the Old Testament was the law of Moses. It was the agreement that both parties uh, took that if the one held to the covenant, then the other would too, so to speak. But of course, God's going to keep his covenant. The only thing in play was whether she would be faithful uh, or not. And so he begins now line upon line to lay out her absolute unfaithfulness to him, the grounds that he has before heaven and earth to be able to divorce her, be done with her, and never have anything to do with her ever again. But the interesting thing about this divorce proceeding is it, is it goes on and, and, and uh, detailed for us in, in that imagery, is that God does it for two reasons. And uh, God very rarely makes a person's sin known to the whole world. Uh, he will keep our sin very, very private in, in our lives, and it's only until uh, something great is in jeopardy, may, and, and something great being our relationship with Him, uh, that He will then sometimes expose sin. But we all know in our own life and relationship with the Lord how discreet God is about what he could say about any of us. And so here he is, he's forced to now speak up. It's not a position that he ever endeavored to be in, but he wants to confront the nation with the seriousness of their sin. And so he does. He's trying to wake them up to what it is that they're doing. And then the second reason that he lays out their sin in such graphic detail is so that as we continue through the book and through the history of the nation of Israel, that though God had ample grounds for divorcing Israel, having nothing to do with her ever again, He doesn't do it. He continues in His covenant with her. 
And yes, he will uh, chasten the dickens out of her uh, and, and in order to bring her to repent, but he will, not vi- he will not abandon the relationship with her so that she can, when she finally uh, sees uh, the light and comes to her senses, will marvel at the grace of God and the love of God demonstrated uh, to her. And uh, in terms of the Lord and how He uh, works in our lives, even in the New Testament, and in, in all of the chastening that He uh, can do in our lives to wake us up to the seriousness of sin and the importance of our relationship with Him, and, uh, and, and, and how He does that. He will never touch our free will. He will never make us do something. He will never make us love Him. He will never make us walk with Him. He won't do that. He wants that to be voluntary on our part toward Him. And so He'll never touch our free will, but He sure knows how to make us willing. And He knows how to make the storms and the difficulties and the problems and the whatever so great in our lives that finally we cry out, Uncle, and it's for our own good. And so this is the imagery that we immerse ourselves in once again, and of course, is it any of us and all of us will want to, as we go through this list, make sure that we check our own lives to uh, make sure these are not present in our lives as well. And so in chapter 5, hear this, O priests. Take heed, O house of Israel. Give ear, O house uh, of the king. And so he's talking about the priests, the religious leaders, the political leaders, and then all of the people uh, as well. For yours is the judgment, because you have been a snare to uh, Mizpah and a net set upon Tabor. And those were two major sites of idolatry in the northern kingdom uh, of Israel, and they were going to be a cause for the slaughter that would come to the northern kingdom by means of uh, the Assyrian invasion. The revolters, and when he refers to the revolters here, he's talking about the priests specifically. The revolters are deeply involved uh, in slaughter, though I rebuke uh, them all. The greatest, uh, the, person, the persons who bore the greatest responsibility for the catastrophe of the apostasy and backsliding of the northern kingdom of Israel was the failure of the priests to maintain their spiritual influence in the nation. Now, the nation might have gone sideways anyway. Even as a nation or a world can go sideways, no matter how diligent any Christian or group of uh, pastors or leaders in the body of Christ worldwide are faithful to their uh, role. Again, people will choose what it is that uh, they, they want to do. But nobody should ever be able to point fingers at leaders and say they failed in their role. Uh, we should be faithful there. One of the things that I have a, a very low... Um, tolerance for, and I've heard it all the days in which I've been a Christian, if I hear somebody on a tape or on the radio or in some kind of an article, and they want to uh, blame Christians for the condition of the world. Uh, If we had only been what we were supposed to be, the world would never be in this condition. And uh, uh, I think that Uh, when you have as much sin that's available and accessible as people uh, have available to them and uh, and the free will to choose it, 
It's, it's not our responsibility that the world has become what it has become. And, uh, but we must make sure that we don't play a role in that. And God wasn't happy with the priests over this. I know Ephraim, and again we remember that Ephraim being the uh, largest tribe of the northern kingdom of Israel, he interchanges the use of Ephraim and Israel. He's referring to the northern kingdom. I know Ephraim, and Israel is not hidden from me. For now, O Ephraim, you commit harlotry, Israel is defiled. And so he speaks to the nation of his uh, 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 omniscience. He knew everything about all of the sins that they were uh, committing. As I heard somebody say, um, it, it's, uh, it, that it's hard to keep a sin away from God when we're committing them in his own living room. Uh, this creation belongs to him. There is no such thing as secret sin. So he says, nothing is hidden from me. And uh, his assessment, his observation uh, of her condition is uh, that she is uh, defiled. And they do not direct their deeds uh, toward turning uh, to their God, for the spirit of harlotry is in their midst, and they do not uh, know the Lord. And so uh, here they don't uh, know the Lord, but more uh, importantly related to the northern kingdom of Israel, not only do they not know the Lord, they don't care that they don't uh, know the Lord. In other words, they have no interest at all in repenting. And then verse 5, the pride of Israel testifies to his face. He wears it all over his face. You know, if you've ever had this as an experience as a Christian, certainly Hosea was running into it, and every prophet in, in the Old Testament ran into it, and that is, uh, here he is, he's, he is rebuking a, uh, a, a very proud northern kingdom of Israel, but the economy's booming. Uh, the military has had uh, recent victories in, in their history. And here he is trying to tell them of the danger that they're in, and they're so smug in all of it uh, that they uh, just dismiss him with a proud look. Now, um, when a person is so proud that they wear it on their face, uh, that's someone who's really, really uh, proud. Not, nobody really likes to see a proud person who carries that smugness and that arrogance uh, visibly upon their face. And uh, nobody likes it when someone shares the gospel with a person or shares something of the Lord with them, and then they are met with that, that pride in their arrogance, the dismissal of this kind of foolishness of a warning uh, from uh, God and how uh, self-important we can be. But we can't, uh, we can't keep ourselves from getting the common cold. And we certainly can't keep ourselves from getting COVID and, uh, or whatever else is in the pipeline on all of this. As I often say, you're going to, every one of us is going to reach an age in which we won't be able to tell our navy blue socks from our black socks in the, in the sock drawer. 
and, uh, and yet we want to mock and, and show a, 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 an air of arrogance, a smugness that's on our face about the very idea of God. And this is the condition of the northern kingdom of Israel. And increasingly, it's the attitude of any idea of God or anyone uh, just, just watching any private conversation or on television or something like that, and somebody brings up something about the Lord. And then you watch the faces, the other faces uh, on the panel, and the pride with which all of it uh, is dismissed. And therefore, Ephraim, Israel and Ephraim, stumble in their iniquity, Judah also stumbles uh, with them. And so all of this is going to end in a terrible, terrible fall. Pride comes before destruction and a haughty spirit uh, 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 before a fall. And with their flocks and herds they shall go to seek the Lord, but they will not find Him. He has withdrawn Himself from them. Now this becomes catastrophic here in verse 16. It is uh, one thing for a people to withdraw from God. That is at one level of seriousness in the relationship. It elevates to the uh, red zone when in that same relationship, God then withdraws from the person and says, in effect, you withdraw from me, then I am going to withdraw from you. My protection, my blessings, the consequences of the sins that you're committing. And so he makes the promise he will uh, withdraw himself uh, from them. This is why anytime any of us would find ourselves, God forbid, but if we find ourselves in a backslidden state, uh, we are still in one realm as long as we're hearing the Lord convict us of our sin, talk to us about our sin, call us to repent of our sin, where it really becomes dangerous is when that voice stops in our lives. And, uh, and, and it, because it's an honor to have God speak into our lives in that way. And that's just what has happened uh, to them. Because if a person, like they were doing, if a person won't speak to the voice of God, then who is left for them to take seriously? There's no fear of God. And, and so that can only end uh, in, in disaster for an individual or a nation. They have dealt treacherously uh, with the Lord. And, uh, and again, in this whole concept of, of the marriage relationship, they've dealt treacherously violating uh, the the covenant, for they have begotten pagan children. And so now, here they are, so far from God, uh, they take their godly heritage, and they throw it all away, and then they raise their children in paganism, and they raise children that know nothing of the Lord. And this is the seriousness of, excuse me, of any human, individual human being uh, and any uh, that has been raised in the Christian faith with a Christian heritage and does not take that heritage and pass it on to their children, but takes the heritage that somebody else invested in their life that keeps them relatively safe in the context of the world, uh, uh, even if they're not walking with God, but they never in turn invest that in the children 
and the children know nothing of uh, the, the beauty of what's been invested uh, in their life. Now a new moon will devour them uh, and uh, their heritage. And so uh, their uh, religious uh, activity that they're going to offer to God, the keeping of the new moon feasts and all of this, God is going to bring all of it to an end. It'll devour them, their hypocrisy and their heritage speaking uh, of their children. He says, blow the ram's horn in Gibeah, uh, the trumpet in Ramah, cry aloud at Bethaven, look behind you, O Benjamin, Ephraim shall be desolate in the day of rebuke among the tribes, tribes of Israel. Uh, I uh, make known what is sure. And so here he continues to uh, promise judgments upon Israel uh, and Judah. And, uh, and as always as he's making these warnings, it's with the hope they will finally listen uh, and repent, but unfortunately uh, they, uh, they don't. Again, verse 9, Ephraim shall be desolate in the day of rebuke, uh, and among the tribes of Israel I make known what is sure. And then he turns his face to Judah, who will also uh, fall but a hundred plus years later to the Babylonians, not the Assyrians. The princes of Judah, whoop, Did anybody get electrocuted <laughs> up here? Huh? You all doing all right? Okay. It's just me. Okay. <laughs> the princes of Judah are like those who remove a landmark, and I will pour my wrath on them like water. So the dishonesty, there was conflict that went on during this period between Judah and between Israel. They were trying to use Assyria in order to defeat one or the other, and uh, Judah was able to defeat Israel in kind of a border war, and then they took advantage of the opportunity to uh, expand their land at the, at the uh, at the expense of the northern kingdom, and, and God didn't like it uh, because it wasn't what God called them to do. They were using political uh, alignments and, uh, and, uh, with uh, Assyria in order to accomplish it. And so I will pour out my wrath on them like water, which is unstoppable. Uh, Ephraim is oppressed and broken in judgment because he willingly walked by human uh, precept. He had the precepts of God available to him, but he rejected them to walk by human precept. And therefore, I will be to Ephraim like a moth and to uh, the house of Judah like rottenness. And so, uh, a moth, and then he's talking about dry rot uh, in, uh, in a house. Both of those are very, very destructive things. But they destroy silently. And uh, you only find out uh, that the destruction has occurred at the world's worst time when you pull the wool jacket or the sweater or something out of, uh, out of the closet with the intent of wearing it, or uh, your porch or the latter portion of your house collapses, 
uh, as a result of it. And so God uh, was uh, already bringing judgment on them, the slow work of judgment, uh, and he would continue to do it until uh, they repented. And when Ephraim saw his sickness and Judah saw his wound, then Ephraim went to Assyria and sent to King Jerob, uh, yet he cannot cure you nor heal you. Uh, uh, you of your wound. And so when this uh, uh, border conflict occurred uh, in between uh, Judah and between Israel, uh, both countries tried to solicit the help of Assyria. Uh, Judah was successful. Northern King of Israel was not successful and, um, in, in, in getting their help. And uh, interestingly, within 20 years, uh, Assyria is going to invade and take the whole country um, anyway. And so uh, he tells them, listen, Assyria, uh, they cannot cure you. Uh, They cannot heal your wound. In fact, uh, the news is worse than that. Uh, They're going to devour you in very short order, which he goes on to in verse 14, for I will be like a lion to Ephraim and like a young lion to the house of Judah. Uh, I, even I, will tear them and go away. I have no uh, experiential knowledge, no knowledge by experience of um, how much more dangerous a regular lion is from a young lion. I think if I'm out on the African plain and I come face to face with one of them, I'm doomed. Uh, <laughs> hey, are you a young lion or are you just a lion? I'm a regular lion. All right, let's get it on. I think I got a chance here. Young lion, I had no chance. No, we have no chance at all here. But a, a young anything in their prime is going to be more dangerous than something that's not in its uh, uh, prime. And so God declares that he's going to be like a moth. He's going to be like dry rot to him. Now he declares that he's going to be a lion to uh, Ephraim, and he will tear them uh, and uh, use Israel uh, to tear them and to take them into captivity. So again, a lion, uh, we have no, uh, it's the king of the beast. Who can take a lion on and win? Who can take God on uh, and, and win is his, uh, his uh, warning here. Interesting, even as just the terms of the beauty and the depth of God's word, the lion is, uh, was a symbol of both the Assyrian kingdom uh, empire and of the Babylonian empire. And so he is, is even giving them hints, though he makes it very clear by name elsewhere that uh, Assyria is going to be the means of God's judgment. And I will take them away, and no one shall uh, uh, rescue. And I will return again to my place uh, till, and so the Lord says he's going to uh, await their repentance. He's going to move away from them now until they acknowledge their uh, offense until they confess their sin and then ask for forgiveness. And so you have the till and then you have the then. Then they will seek my face in their affliction. They will earnestly seek me. And here's the uh, classic verse that communicates that no one can fight God and win. He said, I'll just wait it out. I can turn the fire up uh, on the pot as high as I need to. 
uh, to get you to jump out of that pot. There's no hope of, of winning at all. And this uh, old saying goes, if God is your problem, then only God is your solution. And, and uh, so he's not concerned that they're going to win in this uh, or, or they're going to have the final say in this. It's just a matter of how uh, badly are they going to uh, be dinged up uh, before uh, they're willing to earnestly uh, seek him and, uh, and the day did come, and the Assyrian uh, captivity and the Babylonian captivity uh, accomplished exactly uh, that. And then he speaks in verse 6 about this uh, future uh, uh, repentant generation that is going to return to the Lord. So it's just like God and all of these um, all of these uh, prophets where they're saying such hard things over and over and over again, it's even like the Holy Spirit feels like there's a need to, you know, infuse some hope in here, though there's hope in, in all of it. So here Hosea prophesies of a future generation that will return to the Lord, and God uh, knew that they would. The thing about evil um, is that ultimately it's self-defeating. Uh, evil can only exist and thrive and expand at the expense of good. And it's like a cancer. If it eats, the, if eats up all good, then itself gets destroyed. So it, it always has to operate off of and kind of leech off of, live off of something that is healthy. And so the, there's always the point in the progression where ultimately the organism looks at, at itself and says, we are either going to turn from this sin or we are going to be gone individually from history and gone as a nation. And, uh, and so God knows ultimately they will turn. And it's the same thing. I mean, we see we're in a downward cycle in terms of morally and spiritually in our country, and, and uh, evil will never win. It is never won in history. Uh, you, take, as you look as a student of history, evil can only go so far before it uh, jeopardizes good altogether. People come to their senses, even on a, a carnal level, and then they, they swing back. Now, there is one exception to that. And that will be the rapture of the church where the world will become so evil that God looks at it and says, there's nothing but judgment for it now uh, in order to get people to take me seriously. And then he, he unfolds uh, the, the sanctified horror uh, of the great tribulation period upon the world. Uh, but sooner or later, uh, a generation does turn back. And here's the beauty of this, uh, this future uh, generation for them. Well, they will say, uh, uh, they will seek, uh, I, let's see, um, yeah, verse 1, chapter 6. Come and let us return to the Lord is what they will say. For, and so this call, they're calling one another, let's get back to God. Let's, not just saying it to themselves, but encouraging others. For he has torn for sure, but he will heal us. He has stricken, but he will bind us up. Their confidence in his grace and in his forgiveness. And then uh, after two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will raise us up that we may live 
in his uh, sight. And so they will make this uh, call to one another. And uh, there are uh, some people who look at this in this uh, two days. Uh, after two days, he'll revive us. On the third day, he will raise us up. It, it speaks, for sure, it speaks of the fact that uh, the Lord will restore them quickly related to uh, a, a heartfelt repentance and a turning uh, to, uh, to the Lord. And, um, and some people see in here uh, a reference in terms of the three days to uh, the resurrection of Jesus on the third day, that His resurrection would uh, provide uh, them with the ultimate source for uh, moral and spiritual revival. Others see it as the three days speaking of each day representing a thousand years. As Peter brings out in one of his epistles, with the Lord a day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is a day, and that it's pe speaking about the fact that for 2,000 years uh, uh, following Jesus' resurrection that um, the, the, the Jews will... Uh, uh, not be uh, following him. There, there won't be a, this revival that Hosea is talking about here uh, following their rejection of Jesus. But on the third day, the third thousand year after that, which would be the kingdom age according to uh, the idea, then their eyes will be opened and they will uh, turn wholeheartedly to the Lord. And so it's, it's food for thought. You can do with it uh, whatever you like. But again, this generation uh, turning and calling out saying, uh, let us know, let us pursue the knowledge of God. We've learned all about the world and all about sin and all about everything. Let's turn back to learning about God. Let's do something different. Uh, his going forth is established as the morning, and He will come to us like the rain, like the latter and the former rain to the earth. We're talking about Israel so we're not talking like Cairo or Egypt where they had the Nile River, they had extensive uh, canal systems in order to be less dependent upon uh, rain to water the crops. They needed an early rain and a latter rain for the harvest to come. And so a latter, a, a latter and a former rain uh, would represent uh, God's blessing once again uh, uh, upon them. So this is very beautiful um, the, is this is described, the, the confidence uh, that the backslider that has um, come to the end of their rope, the, the confidence that, uh, that uh, such a person can have uh, to turn back to God and um, the fresh start that God will give them and give uh, us. And then in Chapter, uh, chapter, verse 4 goes back into the present uh, uh, of Israel and Judah's refusal to repent. And he says, O Ephraim, what shall I do with you? <laughs> now, nobody's raised a kid uh, that doesn't know something about that phrase. Or a puppy. Uh, what am I going to do with you? And it's just like a, it's a sanctified exasperation. And you never pull that phrase out till what? You've tried everything else. And God has said, I have tried everything with you to get you to repent. Uh, what am I supposed to do with you? 
O Judah, what shall I do to you? And then here's the reason for the exasperation. For your faithfulness is like a morning cloud, and like early dew it goes away. And so they were claiming to have this uh, commitment to God and faithful to God, and they'll never fail God. And, and, uh, and then as soon as their commitment to God uh, is tested, and the way that dew is tested by the early morning sun, it completely evaporates. And so he says, you say all of these things, you, you worship all of these idols, you still bring all of the offerings uh, to my temple, or uh, you offer them, not to my temple, but you offer them uh, to me in addition to all of this other stuff, and uh, yet the moment uh, your commitment to me is put to any kind of test, it completely uh, uh, vanishes, and therefore I have hewn them by the prophets. And so, uh, what do you hew? Uh, you hew wood, you hew a log. And what do you hew wood with? An axe. So, he says, I have hewn them by the prophets. In other words, I have spoken very, very strongly uh, to the people through the prophets. I mean, I've made it unmistakably clear to them, strong words, and I have slain them by the words of my mouth, and your judgments are like light that go uh, forth. In other words, God had made his promise of uh, judgment if they didn't repent uh, as, uh, as abundantly uh, clear uh, as uh, light. In other words, they're fully responsible for what is coming to them. For I desire mercy and not sacrifice. And here he's talking about mercy toward one another. And their sins against one another are terrible as we get to them in just a, a little bit here. Um, Jesus quoted this two times in, in his uh, public uh, ministry. And in, in talking about and uh, using the, uh, this to speak about, uh, he doesn't want sacrifices, he doesn't want religion, he doesn't want outward kind of actions if we're mistreating our fellow man or mistreating Christians. He goes on and he says that he desires the knowledge of God, a relationship with them, them knowing him more than burnt offerings. And so, uh, God says, I desire a relationship with you. Listen, forget all the offerings. Forget all the burnt offerings. The burnt offering represented total consecration to the Lord. He said, let's not do any more of that. Let you and I get a relationship, and then we'll move on to the offerings, because then they'll represent something real uh, in your life. But like men, they transgressed uh, the covenant. Again, the law of Moses, which constituted the marriage covenant between uh, God the Father and Israel. Uh, there they dealt treacherously with me. Gilead is a city of evildoers. Uh, elsewhere in the Old Testament, we read about the, the balm of Gilead. It was known for this beautiful fragrance. Now it's a city that's uh, of evildoers, and it's defiled with uh, blood. And so he condemns the, the, uh, the violence there as band of robbers wait for a man uh, there in, in that area. So the company of priests murder on the way to Shechem. Okay. I've got two, uh, uh, two exclamation points. 
the margin of my Bible right there at the end of verse 9. So this is how, far, how low the nation has gone. That the priests themselves have gathered together as bands of robbers, and they are robbing pilgrims who are traveling by way of Shechem to come and offer their offerings uh, where these altars were. And so they didn't want to wait till all of these offerings made their way to the place, the assigned place, and then split it with the other priests. They said, let's get a band together and let's steal it from them before uh, they even get there and so we don't have to split it with anyone else. I mean, if you saw that kind of a bad guy in a Western, you'd hate him, let alone wearing priest garb and doing it. But this is how low. Uh, the, the, the nation um, had, uh, had gone on things. And surely uh, they commit lewdness, talking about extraordinary, unnatural sin uh, that filled the land. I have seen a horrible thing in the house of Israel. Uh, there is the harlotry of Ephraim. Uh, Israel is defiled. And also, O Judah, a harvest um, is appointed for you when I return uh, the captives of my people. And so he talks to Judah, and he warns them that you uh, should learn uh, the lessons of the northern kingdom, your brethren in the northern kingdom of Israel, all of the reasons why they went into captivity to the Assyrians so that you don't go into captivity one day to the Babylonians, and they learn nothing. I, I think we've mentioned even in recent weeks here if I will not, not just as a human being, but as a Christian, if I will not learn from the mistakes of other people, and I am determined to learn everything the hard way, then I'm going to have a very, very hard life. It's very important to, be, to watch people and to learn from their mistakes and to say, you know, they touched that a uh, uh, furnace there on the top of the, the burner, on the top of the stove. I don't think I'll do that myself. And, but not only true of a child in terms of physical pain, but also morally and spiritually um, as well. All we need to do is just look at any sin that we would be tempted to engage in, any path of sin that we would be tempted to engage in, and just look at anyone who's a hundred yards down that path, or a mile down that path, or ten miles down that path, or a hundred miles down that path, and then see what it produces. Israel was a hundred miles down that path, and, and Judah could see what it, it would do to anyone who gets on that path, and yet they uh, failed uh, to, uh, to learn uh, from the situation. Uh, chapter 7, he continues the sins of Israel uh, as he unveils them. When I would have healed Israel, then the iniquity of Ephraim uh, was uncovered, and the wickedness of Samaria, for they have committed fraud, a thief comes in, a band of robbers takes a spoil outside, 
and they do not consider their hearts that I remember all of their wickedness. And now their own deeds have surrounded them. Uh, they are before my face, and they make a king glad with their wickedness and princes with uh, their lives. And so fraud was widespread in the nation. Uh, uh, thievery was uh, widespread within uh, the nation. And he tells us in verse 2 uh, why uh, all of this was going on because they as a nation had uh, gave no thought to God. They had lost uh, I- the, the, uh, the consciousness of the presence of God, that God was watching. There was no fear of God uh, within the culture anymore, no fear that God would judge them. Of course, we see that same thing within uh, our culture. And uh, what is lost when people fear one day standing before God on the basis of what it is that, that they're uh, doing. When that is lost, then sin is going to explode. Crime is going to uh, I- I- explode. And, uh, and, and so it is uh, historically. And so he says there at the end of verse 2 that, um, that now their own deeds have surrounded them. In other words, they're engulfed by uh, their sins, and yet he sees all of it. So talking about the fraud and the thieves. And so you, you look around at, uh, you know, our nation today, and uh, every newscast has uh, the thievery going on, uh, the stealing, the fraud going on, just openly, blatantly. In San Francisco, I would no more drive over to San Francisco except for a medical thing or something uh, with just the, the absolute epidemic of the break-ins on the cars. And, uh, and uh, the, uh, they know um, uh, what cars are rentals. And it doesn't even matter if you put the luggage in your trunk when you go over there. They will break the windows, open up the trunk, and they're so bold that they'll pull your luggage out onto the sidewalk and they'll go through it and take what they want and then leave. That's how fearless they are in, in that city in terms of thievery. And you see the videos and the clips of people just going with shopping carts and loading them up. And as long as it's under $940 worth of theft, it's a misdemeanor. The police are stretched too thin to deal with it because of a proposition that we passed in California a few years ago. And out the door it goes. And, and you see where this goes when there's no fear of God. But it's an indication of a society that if it doesn't change, it's unraveling. Because this doesn't get better by just simply allowing it uh, to, to go on. And so if people don't have a fear of God anymore, then they must be given a fear of his institutions. Any nation uh, can at least do that. And one of the institutions of God is government. And the most foundational, basic Responsibility of government is to protect its citizens from attack from without, war, and attack from within, crime. And that's the responsibility. If it has no other responsibility to take seriously, that's what it must and should uh, take seriously. And and what we find ourselves in in the middle of right now, and I think I mentioned it a while ago on a Sunday morning, I think, but in one of the services, but we've got this clash of worldviews that is, is uh, going on here. It isn't just that the, the United States that you and I live in presently 
is uh, morally and spiritually different from who and what we are as Christians who follow the God of the Bible, but their worldview is entirely different. Our worldview is, is that every single human being that comes out of a womb is fallen. And from the very beginning, they are going to need laws, and they are going to need those laws enforced for all of us to get along in this uh, world. And so we recognize the importance of laws and law enforcement. But there is, if not a majority of our country, certainly a majority that hold the levers of power within our country, they view people entirely different. They view people as innately good. And if you're just good to them, you can good them into becoming good themselves. And that's the attempt, the failed attempt, that you see going on before your eyes in the nation that we live in. It's a collision of worldviews. And of course, the second worldview will collapse into chaos. Uh, because chaos is what it ends up producing. And, and so uh, this is what we see. You know, you, it's one thing to take uh, the, the Ten Commandments out of the courtrooms in the United States of America 25, 30 years ago or whatever. And, all right, okay. And then keep moving and moving and moving until you remove God from the public square altogether in the United States of America or you uh, work very hard to keep His voice from uh, being heard so that the population will think there are no consequences to rejecting God and rejecting His, uh, his laws and His commandments. But then you can't hide the fact that there are uh, tremendous uh, consequences uh, for that. And, and these are the kind of consequences that uh, any society will pay in rejecting God and His standards, His, uh, his definitions of right and wrong, His uh, knowledge of who and what we are and how we can get along with one another, seven billion of us in the world, that takes some doing and it requires righteous laws and the enforcement uh, of uh, those laws. And then in verse 3 where he says, uh, they make a king glad with their wickedness and, uh, and the, the uh, princes uh, with their lies. In other words, the rulers no longer were resisting the uh, trend of evil in the land. They're actually uh, glad at the sinfulness of the people. They're delighted at this progressive agenda that was occurring in, in um, Israel in, uh, in that day. And you look at how all of these things are gladly espoused by uh, many, many, and, and the majority presently uh, of the, the, the political realm, the kings, the leaders, the princes, and, and all uh, the encouragement of this kind of behavior uh, instead of resisting it. And it's just backwards and it's uh, criminal. They are all adulterers like an uh, oven heated by a baker. He ceases stirring the fire after kneading the dough uh, until it's leavened. And so the whole nation was heated up in sexual lust 
and, um, and, uh, and consumed with sex uh, like a fire. And so here you have the, um, uh, uh, the oven that's heated by the baker. They would never let the oven go completely out. And, uh, and so even while the, 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 the bread was uh, being leavened and set to the side for a while, the oven remained hot, and they were a nation that remained hot with lust uh, all of the time. And uh, this was a, a dominant influence within the country. And you look at how many industries that there are. I was reading an article a week or two ago. Maybe you saw it. And, um, but they were talking about the traffic now on uh, pornography websites. And I think they just listed four, three or five of them, not even all of them. And they are now surpassing not all use on the internet, but I forget what it was, business use or government use or whatever. It has just gone up to a level that even they can't believe has, has happened. And so all of this money that's made in our culture to keep people stirred up and uh, making this the master passion of their life. And in the day of our king, uh, speaking of maybe the king's birthday or his, uh, the day of his inaugurations, the princes have made him sick, uh, inflaming him with wine, getting him drunk. He's willing to do it. This is the kind of leaders that they have. And he stretched out his hand with the scoffers. And so uh, the kings that they had were just fools. They were just idiots in, in terms of, um, I forget what that is in the Greek or the Hebrew, but that's, that's what they were. So they're, they're just like uh, Nero uh, fiddling while Rome burned. It's like the whole thing is a big game. It's just a big old game. And uh, there's no dangers in the world. And that's the way they were treating their, uh, their office. And while we're playing all this transgender game and all of this sexual revolution game and all of this uh, nonsense that is dividing our nation, the world is becoming more dangerous by the day. And, and yet the leaders are playing games presently when they should be preparing for a world that is more dangerous than ever. And yet they're frittering away the time. They're not leading the way that they ought to lead. And it's very, very uh, dangerous what it is uh, that, that's happening here. They think it's a big game, but it's not a big game. This is a dangerous world to live in, not only for individuals, but for nations as uh, well. We don't have time to throw time away with these silly experiments uh, that aren't founded in Scripture uh, anyway and will collapse under their own we uh, weight one day, uh, but then we may be in the middle uh, of a, uh, uh, some major pickle that wakes us up to get out of it. They prepare their heart like uh, an oven, and, uh, and uh, while they uh, lie in wait, their baker sleeps all night, and in the morning it burns like a flaming fire. So again, the whole focus of the culture, you got all kinds of religion going on, but, uh, but in the daily practice of people's lives, the whole focus uh, was sex and uh, getting drunk and, and getting uh, high. And, and then he goes on in verse 7, 
and he uses hot like an oven in a different way. They're all hot like an oven. They've devoured their judges. All of their kings have fallen, and none of them calls upon me. This was a period in Israel's history in which the kings were turning over very, very quickly because they were overthrowing them. And they were certainly overthrowing any judges or kings that had the potential to be uh, righteous anyway or to turn them uh, 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 back toward uh, God. They only wanted kings that would uh, continue to allow them to practice, uh, to practice their, uh, uh, their sins. And we see the same thing today as things progress in our culture where you see uh, people electing uh, officials who will, above all else, not take our sin away not take our right to abortion away, not take our, uh, our right to uh, the pornography away, not to take the, uh, a, a right for the practice of any sin. Anyone else can get elected, but no one can get elected increasing in measure who has even the threat that would take away, uh, take away the opportunity uh, to sin. I don't know what it would take in our nation for what kind of judgment it would take, what kind of catastrophe it would take in our nation for people to be willing to give up their sin for the sake of the greater whole. And, and that's the condition that they were in. And, and it was a, a mark, of, their, their, uh, a mark of, of judgment being very, very close. Ephraim has mixed himself uh, among the people. Um, uh, uh, among the peoples, Ephraim is a cake uh, uh, unturned. And so, uh, a cake unturned. Imagine in your mind a pancake. And you go, and there you are at, at, at a, you know, some kind of a, a place where they're serving pancakes, and they deliver the pancake, and it's completely burnt on one side, and it's completely raw on the other side. It would be inedible. It's good for nothing. And that's what he's saying about them. They become very, very learned as he talks about it uh, uh, there in all of the mixing of himself with the other peoples. Very, very educated in terms of sin, uh, but completely undone uh, and, and uh, raw as it, in terms of uh, knowing the things of God to bring a balance into their lives or holiness into their lives. And as a result, aliens have devoured uh, his strength, but he does not uh, know it. And so he'll end up, they'll end up spending all of their money for someone to uh, protect them. Yes, gray hairs are here and there, uh, on him. And so uh, Israel, the idea is that Israel is getting older, uh, but still thinks he's young uh, or she's uh, young. They don't know uh, how old they are, how close they are to the end. And the pride of Israel testifies to his face, and they do not return uh, to the Lord their God, nor seek him for all of this. Ephraim is also a silly dove uh, without sense. Uh, they go to Egypt in order to uh, find uh, political alliances for their difficulty. Then they go to Assyria to do the same. And wherever they go, I will spread my net on them. I won't let them be successful. I'll bring them down like the birds of the air. I will chasten them with the Assyrian uh, captivity according to what their congregation has 
uh, heard. And so, rather than deal with the core problem for them as a nation, and that was their relationship with God and the immorality and lack of true spirituality in their midst, they're now trying to manage things day by day and year by year with uh, political alliances. But you can get all the political alliances that you want. Uh, you know, God is basically telling them uh, here, but if you're not, you're not right with me, you have no protection. Uh, the, the greatest boldness that a nation can have in a dangerous world is to know, I'm right with God. I'm right with God. We're an influence for God in, in the world. And I know I, I'm an older man. And, and I remember when we were more of that than we are today. And I don't think the United States of America can have any boldness in the face of any uncertainty in the world or in the face of any war or anything in our current condition. Because there's a boldness that comes from God with being on the right side of things that only comes from there. And we're drifting from it. But let me say, I don't think the cause is lost. I look at what's going on and I read the headlines and I watch the different things and all. And sometimes I can't wonder whether it's a tempest in a teapot. How big is it compared to silent America that's going on about its business? And then one moment in one day it will rise up and wash the whole thing away for the nonsense that it is. And a revival would certainly accomplish that as well. So, but if these kind of policies, these kind of things are successful that are being endeavored, then they're very, very dangerous uh, indeed. And there'll be uh, no hope apart from God in, in the middle of that danger. Woe to them, for they have fled from me. Destruction to them, because they have transgressed against me. Though I redeem them, yet they have spoken lies against me. They did not cry out to me with their heart when they wailed on their beds. The day would come when they would cry over their sin, uh, but they wouldn't repent. They assembled together for grain and new wine. They rebel against me, though I disciplined them and strengthened their arms. Yet they devise evil against me. They return, but not to the Most High. And they are a treacherous bow. Their uh, princes shall fall by the sword for the cursings of their tongue. A treacherous bow is a warped bow. So when you're in the middle of a battle, uh, you don't want to have a warped bow because that arrow is not going to go where you're aiming it. And when you're in a battle, it's life and death. And God is telling them, God had given them, uh, they had had recent military uh, success. And God says, don't think you're such big shots with your big military uh, that you've got, because if you go up against me in this, I'll make your, uh, uh, your military a treacherous bow. It will fail, uh, fail you. And then they shall be a derision. This shall be uh, their derision in the land of Egypt once they're defeated and taken into uh, the uh, captivity by the Assyrians. Uh, the history of Israel, uh, the northern kingdom of Israel, will be a joke. It'll be a joke. They will laugh in Egypt. They will laugh at the folly of a people who made the decisions that they made 
to end up in this place. Again, it's a dangerous world that we live in. And if you think that other nations are going to be sad because Israel fell, or if you think that if the United States of America falls on its current trajectory, that any other nation in the world is going to weep over that, you're kidding yourself. And, and show mercy or pity to us. There will just be derision. It will be a going to the history books and saying, can you believe what they did with a nation like that? And it'll just be derision. Again, the folly of a nation ever putting themselves in a place where they depend upon the mercy of another nation in a world that has fallen uh, as this. So I know you're all glad that you came tonight to hear all of this. So we see the need for revival. We see the need for the darker things get for uh, the light that our lives are. We're talking about being living epistles uh, this morning. We're talking about uh, the importance of resisting these kind of things in whatever way God calls us by our Holy, the Holy Spirit to do so, so that we don't roll over on issues that have to do with spirituality and with morality. Sooner or later, somebody has to stand and then resist. And one of the things that's uh, interesting is I remember there used to be, I know I'm over two minutes, and, but I'm, I'm done. Um, the, but there was a thing called the AFA Journal, the American Family Association Journal, uh, years ago. Maybe it's still uh, happening today. But one of the most valuable portions of that journal that they would mail out was they would always have a section of one Christian who would stand up in one environment, and it only took one to turn the whole thing around. And sometimes it just takes that, and we see people making a stand for uh, their rights and for morality and for spirituality and righteousness in the nation, and we're at a place where we need to seriously consider that related to our own lives and be led by the Spirit uh, in order to resist these same trends that are going on, not just in our nation, but in the world. The world has always needed salt, and it's always needed light. And that's precisely what we uh, are. Let's stand together now, and we'll close in prayer. Father, it is interesting that there's nothing new under the sun. It's the same folly. It's the same pattern. It's the same uh, sequence of events that, that uh, goes on. The same mistakes that are made, history repeated, and all of it as if uh, there was no history in human history. And we thank you for what you record in your history, in your book, Lord, that educates us about not only the nation of Israel and the, in the ancient world and, and your dealings with them, but the danger of these same things as we see them around us today. And we pray to whatever degree any of these sins have begun to encumber us, if we're a hot uh, oven, Lord, or if uh, we're about drunkenness, or we're about fraud, or lying, or strong army people, whatever it might be that you would use this to purify and cleanse us, 
And then most of all, Lord, we pray that You would use this to make us into Hoseas, make us into people who will lovingly but determinedly and out of a love for You stand for Your truth and for Your righteousness in this nation that You have placed us in and in this world that You have placed us in. And we ask for that work of Your Spirit through Your Word in our lives tonight, and we ask for it in Jesus' name. Amen. If you're not a Christian tonight, you need to get that taken care of. We'll be up in front immediately after the service. would love to lead you in prayer to put your faith in Jesus.